0: of weeks as we've been teaching to you our Christmas series entitled An American Christmas Carol and how America has been Scrooged and we've been endeavoring to hear what the Lord might say to us through the illustration of Ebenezer Scrooge and if you've been here you know that we've been talking about Scrooge's life talking about how it is I believe the personification of America. In fact, I put it on the screen. I just think that Scrooge was used in 1843 by Charles Dickens as a personification of England and London at that particular time. And in some ways, I've just hijacked that idea and uh, have seen him in some ways as a personification of some of our desperate needs here in America. And so I thought during the Christmas season, as... We seem to turn our attention to benevolence and uh, many turn their attention to the Christ. I thought it'd be good that maybe we would take also a look at where our nation is and what's going on in our nation and how reclamation and salvation and renewal and an awakening needs to happen even amongst our own ranks. You know, uh, I mentioned to you last week that in the book of the Revelation, Revelation chapter three, the last church, the seventh church that Jesus speaks to is the Laodicean church. And uh, there are some people who believe that the seven churches represent seven different time periods or seven different ages uh, in history. The seventh, of course, being the history you and I are now currently living in, the last age. And whether or not you would buy into that sort of dispensational understanding I think there is merit in looking at the Laodicean church, the last church, and seeing that some of the very issues Jesus points out in this one particular church is certainly some of the very issues we face in America. Now, I understand that everyone's not Scrooge, and I understand that not everyone's got problems with God or alienated from each other or the Lord, I I get that there are people who are righteous and living for God all out. And I would hope to be counted. And I believe I can be counted to be among those who are in the remnant that are doing our dead level best to be a voice and to also give testimony by the fruit of our lives that we're all out for the things of the Lord. And I want you to be that as well. Amen. Now, that's never been the predominance of the culture. That's always been a remnant. But there's times that the church has to be a voice to the rest of the culture in order to challenge it, really to be a prophetic voice, to challenge it back to the ways and the precepts of the Lord. And so while I recognize that there can be benevolent people and there can be gracious people, and at times even the world, even though it lives unrighteously, can find itself at moments being benevolent. And these things are good, but these things don't make you right with God. And so I get that, that the Scrooge illustration may break down, but, but the thing that I want to underscore, that and it's the part that I want you to get a hold of, is that Scrooge to us represents the spirit of greed, the the hard-heartedness of the heart, spiritual blindness, self-centeredness. And these things, unfortunately, are not only a part of the culture, but sometimes they creep into the life of those who are a part of Of Christ Church and so we've been teaching how America much like Scrooge needs an intervention Our first lesson as you will recall was that we need an awakening Scrooge needed an awakening and we know that God did that through his son Jesus Jesus and his incarnation Was literally an intervention into this world in order that if we would open our hearts and receive him, I call that gospel rehab. That if you'll get some gospel rehab, you can be set free from your chains and your bondages and your addictions. All of the things that have so uh, enslaved us, we can be set set free from all of these things through his son Jesus. And in Dickens' story... Scrooge receives, as you will recall, three visits from three different, some people call them ghosts, some people call them spirits, which to me represented several things that the Bible teaches and that we could learn from. The first one was is is that he needed an awakening. There There was Marley who came to see him and said, you know, if you don't change your ways, what has happened to me will become even worse to you. And so there was an awakening, an epiphany that he needed to begin to have. Last week, we spoke about how Scrooge needed to come to terms with his past. And so the spirit of Christmas past shows up and takes him through this tour of all the things, the wounds, the hurts, the traumas, all the things that took place in Scrooge's life which gave way in his heart to provide an open door for the enemy to move through. And now this week, I want to take just a few moments and talk about the spirit of Christmas present. The spirit of Christmas present. Because as, as important as it is to know that we need an awakening, as important as it is to be able to deal with and recognize what has happened in your past, we also need to understand the fruit of what's going on in our life even at this very moment. We need to see some things that are current and relevant. And so as the spirit of Christmas present came to visit Scrooge, the word that I want to leave with you this morning is what I've entitled a revelation of our selfishness. When Scrooge got his visit from the spirit of Christmas present, what he received was a revelation of his selfishness. And I'm going to read some Scripture here in just a moment because I know it's not a legitimate message until some Scripture is read somewhere. So, I will get there and I will read the Bible in just a moment, but bear with me. Uh, last week we ran a number of clips because I thought they were good illustrations of how, of how people like Scrooge are wounded and how they face traumas and how things are opened up in their life in order that the enemy exploits and twists and uses for our own destruction. But this week, I may not use as many clips, that we have just one more clip I'm going to look at here in just a few moments. But what happened was, is that Scrooge was taken through various venues of his personal life today in order to be shown, beyond a shadow of a doubt, some of the fruit of his life. You know, sometimes it's important to see the wake we're leaving behind us. It's interesting, a lot of people go through life and they never consider there's a wake. And so they are oblivious. They're blind to the things that are happening in their life right now. And so lots of times they they need to be awakened. And so Scrooge was awakened. He was awakened in uh, our clip that we just saw of minors with their children. In those days, there were no child labor laws. And so children, very small children worked in the mines. And and, uh, many of us know just by virtue of hearing it through the years, there's There's miner's lung, coal lungs, and children at very young ages would work very long hours. They wouldn't go to school. They would just work in the mines. In fact, one of Wesley's great hearts was when he established Sunday school. A lot of people thought Sunday school was started as a way to provide religious instruction for children. But truth of the matter was that Sunday school was actually Wesley's method for educating children that worked in the mines. And so during that time period, here's Scrooge, and he's being confronted with these miners that are living in poverty, their children huddling around a fire, they're singing Christmas carols, there's no trees, there's no presents, there's no great Christmas banquet, there's not much of anything that's going to happen. And the reason it's not happening is because people like Scrooge had no heart to help any. And so he needed to be confronted with that. He would eventually be led to his clerk's house, Bob Cratchit. And he would see that the very person that works for him was finding it extremely difficult to make ends meet, especially tiny Tim. And for those of you that know the story, know that Tim had some form of crippling disease that we're never told what it is. But eventually we learn that if it's not taken care of, Tim will die. And all of a sudden, Scrooge is confronted with the reality of, of what he has ostensibly produced because of not taking care of his employee correctly, and yet he sees they're of good spirit. He sees that they're celebrating the day. And then finally, the last stop he makes is with his nephew and his fiance whom he has alienated. And as you will recall from last week, the reason Scrooge alienated his nephew was because his sister, whom he loved deeply and desperately, died giving birth to his nephew. It was the same thing that happened to himself as his mother gave Scrooge birth, his mother passed away, and his father held it against him. And so now Scrooge is faced with a very similar situation and whether you look at it generationally as a curse or whether you look at it just as sort of a, as an odd fate, he begins to do the very thing that his father did to him and he begins to judge and really hate his nephew because... He feels like it was the birth of his nephew that took away the sister that he so desperately loved. And, and, and he's confronted with the fact that despite the fact through all of the years he's done everything he could to push him away and alienate him, they're, they're of good cheer. Having a, a, a party and, and actually uh, speaking well of Scrooge himself. And he's confronted. He's confronted with the depths of his selfishness. He's confronted with the fact that That everything revolves around him. Now, there are some things that, as you look at the life of Scrooge, we can learn about selfishness. There are just a couple things I want to put out here real fast. Number one, most selfish people have no idea these things exist. Do you know why selfish people have no idea that things exist? You know, Luther defined it years ago he used the Latin phrase, I always like throwing a little Latin out there because all of you people that are really smart and heady and you think that you have to have something to titillate your mind, I'll throw a little Latin at you. And then I'll look at you and tell you, get delivered from it. It was the incurvatum say, Man turned into himself. That's what, that's what depravity is. That's what selfishness is. Man turned into himself. And you know, when you're turned into yourself, it's amazing how you don't see anything that's going on around you. I've visited with both men and women through the years. They've lost their families. They've lost their marriages. They've lost their life. They've alienated others in their family tree. And and, and I've told you this. They'll come in and they'll say, I, I didn't see it coming. Well, sometimes we don't see it coming because the only thing you see is you. The best view you've ever seen is the one in the mirror. And and so it becomes an inward gaze and 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 Scrooge had no idea that all of these things existed around him number 2 he had isolated himself in his own world you know it was more difficult i think in 1843 to do this probably than it is today but do you realize today how easy it is to isolate ourselves in our own world do you know that this morning by coming here is a great breakthrough because you could either by television or by internet you know bring up a church service and you could have your own little church service there at your laptop or your desktop there at home you can order everything you need from that laptop or desktop they'll deliver it straight to your door Do you understand that you can communicate with anyone you want to or not communicate with anyone you want to? I mean, your whole world can be built from from your very own living room. And what has happened in our society is we have isolated ourselves from one another. I remember growing up, some of you will remember this too, that you grew up in neighborhoods. and, And you remember everybody knew their neighbors. Remember that? I remember the kids would all get together. We'd play baseball or whatever. I also remember that every mom in the neighborhood had, had permission to whoop any boy in the neighborhood. I don't know how your neighborhood worked. That's how mine worked. And that's just what we did. I mean, it was a neighborhood. We had neighborhood parties. I remember, you know, we'd have these big, you know, pig pickings and, you'd, you know, you'd heat the rocks, bury the pig, and you'd have a big neighborhood party. And I realize some neighborhoods still try to do that and attempt to do that. But I would venture to guess for most of us living in the neighborhoods we live in that to be candid with you, we don't know our neighbors that well. We don't know really what's going on in their life. We, we may try and reach out, but it's just difficult in the day and age we live in. And, and that's a form of cultural self-centeredness. I know we do our best. We've tried to do our best. But, but at the same time, we, we just isolate ourselves in our world. And then finally, number three, Scrooge had insulated himself from empathizing with others. I think because of the isolation we can begin to insulate until finally it's tough to move people anymore. I realize we have television and, and television's a powerful medium. And uh, there are things I think that can still solicit the empathy or the emotions in people's lives. I, uh, I saw here locally, uh, tragically, uh, a young boy, was it not, that went to school and set himself on fire. And I think just about everybody's heard that. And it's been a long time since I just stood riveted to a news story and I watched the news story and I've listened to it and i followed in the paper. And it's been a long time since my heart's been tugged at in that regard, just by a local story. Because is it not true? My, we hear about murders and shootings and, and, and we, we hear about crime. We hear about all the things. And, and I'm unmoved mostly because it's just, it's life. And, and maybe every now and then something will come through on our radar that will sort of solicit our heart or solicit our emotion. But the reason that is, is because we've so insulated ourselves. doesn't touch us really anymore unless it touches our household directly. Because it's just far away. Tsunamis are far away and earthquakes are far away. And, and poverty's far away. And it's on the other side of the track. I don't get over there often. And, and we've just insulated our lives. Folks, we've done that spiritually too. We've got to the place where we don't even know many lost people anymore. We've just so insulated ourselves. And so we've got to begin to, to break out of our self-consumption and our selfishness. And, and we can learn some things through Scrooge about these things. And you've heard me say on numerous times that that's the nature of sin. If you want to know what the nature of sin is, not just that you do things that God says are bad. A lot of people think sin is just, well, God said it's sin, and we aren't supposed to do it. And when you do it, it's wrong, and you're in trouble. And they just think it's this capricious list that gets thrown out there. But God didn't make up some capricious list and just say, don't do these things. If you'll study the list, basically every list that God has or every rule that God has, basically you can trace back to the law of love or the law of selfishness. That most sin is birthed out of selfishness. If you covet your neighbor's stuff, it's because of selfishness. If, if you leave your wife and your kids to go chase another young thing, it's because of... See? If you steal something that someone else is, it's because of. If you're lying about something you ought not be lying about, it's because of. See, everything, the irreducible residue of depravity is selfishness, selfishness. It's when we become the center of our own universe and everything revolves around us. Our wants, our desires, our convenience, our benefit. It's not just, sin isn't just what you do or not do. It, it's a fruit. Selfishness is a fruit of who you are. That's why God not only forgives what you do. Isn't that good that we can receive forgiveness for all the things we've done? But that's why we preach conversion or we preach transformation. It's because God doesn't just forgive me for all the bad, selfish things that I've done, but he takes me out of my selfishness. He transforms me out of me being the center of my universe, and now he becomes the center of the universe. That's what people so don't get anymore. We've got people that will make decisions and they'll serve Jesus, but they think Jesus is there to help them be better selfish people. I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to get more. God's going to help me. I'm going to get everything I want. That's what Jesus is here for, to help me get everything I want. No, he's not. Jesus, does he want you to be blessed? Yes, but Jesus isn't here to facilitate you. You are here to do the will of your Father. You see, that's what you've got to break out of. And will you be blessed along the way? Absolutely. But that's not where it starts. It's not about you. It's about Him. You see, America's issues are not as easily solved as simply outlawing or legislating away things we like or we don't like. See, the issues we face in our country are not as easy as, as implementing or forcing people to do the things they need to be doing or to somehow uh, hammer them or, or find them or, or jail them, imprison them for things that they choose not to do. You see, America will never be right until America gets transformed. You can legislate thousands of bills and it will never fix the human heart. I, I'm not saying people don't need help paying bills. I'm not saying people don't need help uh, with their health care. I'm not saying people don't need help in getting by. I'm not, I mean, we can, I, I'm a compassionate guy. I don't want people to struggle anymore. Then you might want people to struggle, but forcing me does nothing unless my heart's transformed. I'll be bitter in it all. And that's the part we don't get in America. We think we pass a law and it fixes it. It doesn't fix anything. We just get more lawyers, find another loophole, and then I don't have to do it. So what's the answer? I'll tell you what the answer is. It's it's transformation. If we could transform the human heart, we would get rid of thousands and thousands and thousands of lawyers. Because the heart would be transformed. So that's why, that's why it's not just about changing political parties. It's not just about changing a White House or, or changing a State House. Or, I mean, I understand these things have a place, but they are not the place. We need a divine transformation in America of our heart. We need to be changed internally. And Scrooge needed not only understanding of his past, which we talked of last week, but a revelation of where his self-centeredness had led him. And the most powerful moment to me was when the spirit of Christmas present showed Scrooge the foundation of all that was happening by opening up his cloak and speaking just a small statement. Watch the screen overhead and see what happens. Where are you taking me now? My time with you, Ebenezer, is almost done. Will you profit by what I have shown you of the good in most men's hearts? No. Who can I promise? It's too hard a lesson for you to learn. Then learn this lesson. Spirit, are these yours? They are man's. They cling to me for protection from their fetters. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both. But most of all, beware this boy. But have they no refuge? No resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? All of a sudden, his selfishness was epitomized or confronted, he was confronted by the children that were under the cloak of Christmas present. If you could hear, the children were labeled want and ignorance, want and ignorance. His selfishness and the nation of England then, and perhaps our nation today, I believe has declared war on the next generation. You see, the fruit of our sin, the fruit of our selfishness is always taken out on the next generation. Sure it is. We'll we'll rack up in America deficits into the tens of trillions of dollars. Folks, I can't conceive, can you, of a trillion dollars? Much less 10, 14 trillion? Think about that. Who pays for that? I know what we say. We don't pay for it. We just print more money. Yeah, yeah. You keep printing more money. And every time you go to the grocery store, just watch what happens. See, we want what we want when we want it, but we have no concern and we've not even thought through what it means for the next generation. We do things because this is me. This is now. It's all about me. It's about my need, my moment, what I want. I want what I want right now. And what happens is, even as a nation, what happens is, is that maybe we slide by for a little bit. Maybe we squeak by in some areas, but eventually it catches up. And the unfortunate part of it all is it always catches up on the next generation. Always. Always. I want to read to you out of the Christmas story. I promised I'd read some scripture to you. And there's just an interesting story that's slid in the Christmas story that, uh, to be honest with you, it's just almost out of character for what we perceive to be sort of the uh, genre or the atmosphere of Christ's birth. You'll you'll recognize that most of us know the story. We just don't like to mention it when we're talking about Christmas and the beauty of the nativity scene and all the things that were happening around Jesus' birth. But there was something quite important in Matthew chapter 1. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 2. Guys, I probably uh, mixed you up there in the back. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 7. Matthew 2, verse 7. The wise men, the magi, had shown up in verse 7. It says, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Did you recall, the magi were following the star to worship the Christ. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So when they heard the king, they departed. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense and myrrh. I was mentioning, I think to the Wednesday night crew, the reason the Magi brought these gifts was that they were literally funding, the Lord was funding Joseph's trip to Egypt that he was going to make in the next short period of time. If you ever wonder why Jesus got these gifts, it was because Uh, God was resourcing the house for a long trip that they were fixing to take. Verse 12 says, These magi, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child. To do what? Yeah, to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then the most tragic passage in the whole Christmas story, verse 16. says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children, who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Herod is our biblical Scrooge times 100. He epitomizes the acutely self-consumed. Herod as an adult and as a king, was still petty, he was still insecure, and he was still selfish. You know, Herod gets overlooked at times because obviously it's the Christmas story. But can I just tell you a few things about Herod? I mean, if this in and of itself doesn't prove his self-centeredness, let me just share a couple other things about this notorious king. He was an egomaniac. He actually had six sons and he named all of them Herod. Now, doesn't that say a little something about the guy? Herod 1, Herod 2, Herod 3 through Herod 6. He was insanely suspicious. We know that he murdered two of his wives. He murdered his mother-in-law. He murdered three of his sons. In fact, the Caesar of that era, Augustus, said it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's family. You know, the day Herod died... He ordered that thousands of the wealthiest people in the city be killed on the same day, at the same moment that he died, because he knew no one would mourn him and he wanted mourning in the streets. His most infamous legacy, however, was that he killed the male children under two years of age, trying to extinguish the Messiah, trying to extinguish what he thought was his potential rule, trying to extinguish the ways of God and the purposes of God. He was going to kill all the children and he epitomizes at that moment. Really, what most politicians do, you get rid of your enemies. And it's easy to see the depravity, I think, in in a guy like Herod or, or even a guy like Scrooge because it's easy for us to grasp when it's right there in front of our nose. It's easy as you hear me tell the story about Herod or as we watch the film clips about Scrooge. It's easy to see selfishness at work. But you know, we're all, we're all really the same because when it comes to measuring ourselves, we're always measuring ourselves to someone else. And so we always look better than somebody else we can find. And so we feel better, you know. Hey, I'll just say this out loud. I am glad that I'm better than Adolf. Hitler. If that's your measuring stick, then you probably are, too. But that's not the measuring stick, is it? I'm not sure I fully understood where we were as a nation until I read a recent article. I'm going to read this. This is recent. This is this was posted November the 29th. Listen to this. I'm just going to read it as it's written here. Headline. Planned Parenthood selling gift certificates to promote choice on earth. America's largest provider of abortion will be selling holiday gift certificates, good for services, including abortion, in a fundraising effort uh, during a Jewish bazaar on Sunday at, at, at a location I won't mention. The certificates are being sold as a part of Planned Parenthood and an effort to raise funds for their organization. The actual state council president where this is happening said these efforts are meant to mock those whose faith dictates that abortion is morally wrong. They have a true disrespect and disdain for those who have a true faith, he commented. He believes their holiday efforts are a not-so-subtle poke-in-the-eye of pro-life advocates. In the past... Planned Parenthood has sold choice-on-earth-themed Christmas cards. The cards feature a variety of designs, including two doves, one white and one gold, holding olive branches. Other cards stating season greetings and happy planning for the new year, while featuring white silhouettes of a parent and a child on a pink background. Now, isn't that oxymoronic? Planned Parenthood, I'm quoting, has enjoyed poking Christians with sticks at Christmas, mocking the birth of Jesus with their unique holiday greeting cards. And uh, I could go on, but it doesn't get much better. If you were told, and, and folks, can I just tell you, we were told 20 years ago where all this would lead but today, I guess I'm the Spirit of Christmas present to you to let you know where we are as a nation. You can get now, just like you can get your McDonald's gift certificate, you can get your Steinmark gift certificate. You can you can get your belt, your Dillard's, your pennies, your Sears gift certificate. Isn't it good to know? You can get your planned parenthood gift certificate. Since Roe v. Wade, there have been nearly sixty million abortions 4400 a day every 20 seconds a preborn child dies those numbers are almost too great to envision do you realize the total casualties in all the wars of our nation's history does not equal annually what we do to babies that are in the womb Again, I believe America can be exceptional. I believe America can be great, but not doing this. We are better than this. And I think if anything is blasphemous, then to encourage abortion through the use of the Christ child reveals the depths of our self-deception. It is tantamount in my mind to the pagan practices of ancient Canaanites who sacrificed their children to be blessed by their demon God. God spoke clearly in His Word about the shedding of innocent blood and the particular heinous practice of child sacrifice, and the prophets were outraged. And I have no problem sharing with you that one of the issues that should be prioritized by every Christian when they vote for government officials should be whether or not they are pro-life. Do you understand that if you lose life, you don't have liberty and you can't pursue happiness. You can't own property. You can't be free to worship. You can't be free to assemble. You don't have the right to speak. You have no right to bear arms. You have no rights at all because you ain't here. If there's no right to exist Everything else becomes meaningless. And I believe there is no singular issue we face as Americans that demonstrates our innate selfishness than the issue of abortion. I've heard people say for years, well, it's a woman's right to control her body. I, I understand that you should have controlled your body before you got pregnant. That's one of the things I just like to say first. First. But aside from that, if we're Christian, if we're Christian, the scripture says that our bodies are not our own. My body's not my own. I realize I'm a man, and I realize as a man, I don't suffer the repercussion of sexual activity. I understand that. I understand that it's my wife who gets pregnant. I don't get pregnant. And for some reason, we felt like as men, we had no voice in this matter. I believe, men, that we are the voice in this matter. I believe we are the ones that can step up and begin to say we will take responsibility. We will support these children. We will become fathers in the land. We don't want them to go. These are answers, not problems. Because the truth of the matter is is this whole issue not just demonstrates a poor choice by a woman but it demonstrates the callousness of men who refuse to step up to the plate after getting a poor girl pregnant and supporting her emotionally and financially you wooed her to that place now support her in that place. She didn't get that way on her own fellas. It's not her problem alone. It's your seed. And if she got pregnant, then it landed somewhere it shouldn't have landed. Everyone sees these effects on the woman, but it's time we expose the irresponsibility of the men and we affirm the men that step up. Listen, I don't believe you ought to be fooling around before you get married. You know, I'm a pastor. I'm a conservative pastor. I think that the marriage license ought to be signed before sex happens. I don't know how <laughs> easier and, 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 and more blunt to say it except that way. You say, well, you don't get modern times. Well, you're right, I don't get everything. But I will say this. I'll say that maybe I can't stop premarital sex, but come on, if you feel like you're responsible enough to have it, then be responsible enough to walk it all the way through. I don't think you ought to be. I think it's that's why God says don't do it till you're married. That's why God says it. It demonstrates our callousness and our selfishness. Do you understand? I I know my wife fairly well. I've been married to her now 29 years. I've walked with people for years and years and years. And ladies, I'm going to say something that I think all of you would agree with. But I believe that there's an innate desire in every woman to bring forth children. I don't care how, how celebrity they are or how... How, how business savvy they are. I just think it, within a woman, there's, there's a need to have children. I'm watching even the Hollywood crowd. They don't want to get married, but they still want kids. I'm just going, have a mercy. Can we just say this? Don't follow Hollywood. Please. They make a gajillion dollars. Their, their money insulates them from repercussions for a while. That's why it's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom because their money insulates them from the dealings of God. But there'll there'll be a moment. God isn't stopped by that. But I think for most women, there's an innate desire to bear children. And do you realize that that when we're pregnant, I believe for most women, there's that innate feeling, and that's a God thing. That there's something alive that's growing inside of them. It's not just goo. It's not just flesh. From the moment a a, a seed fertilizes an egg, do you understand there's human DNA at work? It demonstrates, unfortunately, the callousness of families and society who could easily step up and step into these kids' lives. We have plenty of people who want kids that can't have kids that are spending thousands and thousands and thousands on in vitro and other medical methods. And I affirm that I'm not against these things. I understand why they do it because it's crazy trying to adopt. Most every problem we face today as a nation can be traced back to our own selfish nature housing bubbles that burst it was our own selfish nature we all wanted houses we live in it a year we can make about 50k on it then we're going to turn it over why, why, why do we think that was going to work for very long because we want what we want when market crashes and then we bail out we bail out the market and we bail out we bail out gm and we bail out all these people we just all of it is just selfish we they're too big to fall i'm not too big to fall why is everybody else suddenly too big to fall joblessness companies sending their, their jobs overseas because they don't want to keep them here because they can make a few more dollars. So they ship them overseas. Let me tell you, I will offend you if you're a Republican or a Democrat, because it is time we thought like the kingdom. I'm, I'm a real conservative person. And generally I'll just tell you, I vote fairly conservative, but, but I, I, I understand that the kernel heart is the issue. You say, well, what do we do, Pastor, to change it all? I'm just going to give you three quick things, and I'm done. I really am. It's just super fast. Number one is, folks, we gotta, we got to have convictions based on God's truth. Not what's convenient, not what is easy, not what just fits my particular circumstance at this moment. That's called relativism. Truth is not relative. Truth fits no matter where you're at. It's never good to lie. It's never right to steal. Do you understand when you say, well, it was right in this instance to steal? No, it's not. God says, don't steal. It's not right to steal. You say, well, I had to steal. If I didn't steal, if I didn't steal this, I couldn't, I I was doing something, I was doing something good with what I stolen. You know what that is? That's the end justifying the means. I'm, I'm just getting us back to just some ground level moral and ethical statements. That's why God says, don't do that. Because, you see, if you steal in order to, to somehow help a greater purpose, the problem is, is that you trusted, you trusted a sin more than you trusted your God. So we've got to have convictions based on God's truth. There's a poem I read years ago. It says this, The world needs men and women who cannot be bought, whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, Who possess opinions and a strong will, who are larger than their vocations, who do not hesitate to take a risk, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who will be as honest in small things as in great, who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, who will not say they do it because everyone else does it, who are true to their friends through good and bad, in adversity as well as in prosperity. Who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, and hard-headedness are the best qualities for winning success. Who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for truth when it is unpopular. Who can say no with emphasis along with the rest of the world when it says yes. You know what? Sometimes we just need Nancy Reagan's words again in our ears that says, Just say no. Just say no. No, I don't do that. No, I, I don't. I don't go that direction. No, I don't participate in that. No, it's really pretty easy. I mean, I like saying yes, but sometimes God's in the no. have a conviction. Number one, number two, I think we got to get a generational vision vision. You know what? I realize Jesus could come soon. He could come tomorrow, but you know what? The Bible still says occupy until he comes. And so this is, this is the way I look at it. I believe Jesus could come before the day's over. I believe that he, everything is set up for Jesus to show up at any moment, which ought to just put a little bit of the fear of God in all of us, because everything's in perfect alignment for the Lord to come and gather his people. Now, knowing that you might think you would have the tendency just to kind of just wait and, and, and and keep your eyes to the sky. But listen, While we're waiting for Jesus to come at any moment, He says that we're to occupy and we're to keep pressing His purposes in the earth. We're to keep reaching out and discipling nations, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. These are our purposes and callings. We give up too easily. We need to begin to leave something behind. We need to be a voice for the voiceless and the helpless. And if we don't start saying it, then who will? Folks, I'm talking around office coolers and, and, and when you're walking down in schools and hallways and we're just interacting with people, there comes a moment when if they're bold enough to say something that is absolutely wrong and in error and have no problem challenging you, then out of a good spirit you can look and simply say, I don't believe that. I don't think that way. I I I I I believe that there's greater purposes. Do you understand? Just if we go back to just the abortion issue, I'm telling you, can you imagine the, the the apostles and the prophets and the missionaries and the evangelists that the enemy has snuffed out? Millions of them snuffed out because it was all about convenience. And and there needs to be a voice in every generation. You know, the Dobsons and the Falwells and and the D. James Kennedys, and they're all dying and they're passing off the scene. And whether you like them or not, they were at least a voice that made us think about moral issues. We've got to have voices again, and maybe God won't raise up one. Maybe he'll raise up his church. But we've got to get a generational vision as to what we're handing off. Somebody, listen, this is the key, I think. It's not just slowing it down. It's stopping and reversing. And we've got to get a mentality of victory. See, most of the world has a mentality of victory because they don't believe Jesus is coming. So we've got another two, three, five thousand years, they think. So they keep working at it. We Christians think Jesus is coming, so we just give up because we're not going to be here anyway. It's time we broke out of that and we began to see that we're leaving something behind. And if Jesus does not come and this isn't the moment, then we're going to have to hand something off that, that our children and our children's children can build on so that we don't leave them a mess. Cause right now folks, we're leaving them a mess. So we got to get a generational vision. And then finally, number three, we got to become, and I mentioned this, we've got to become the church. You know, the church, interestingly, if you're on, if you're one of my Facebook friends, I just posted it in one of my entries, one of my status entries. I just put church, ekklesia. Ekklesia means actually, ek means out. Klesia comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means called. So literally, it means the called out ones. Now that's interesting to pursue, but if you'll understand where the Holy Spirit picked that word up from, He actually picked that word up from Uh, A governmental or political arena. It actually, it's etymology. If you follow it, it's picked out from those who are called to change the affairs of a state or change the affairs of a nation. Now, listen to me. I don't believe, I don't believe anything happens purely politically, but I do believe that the gospel is good for every arena of life. There is no area of life that the cross does not touch. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's Lord of nothing. There's not some area of life that he's not Lord of. Well, he's Lord of my life, but he's not Lord He's not Lord of the nation or he's not Lord of the political process or he's not Lord of business or the marketplace. Do you understand how compartmentalized we have developed? Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. The whole world fell when Adam sinned. Everything came under the curse when he sinned. There was nothing that wasn't touched by sin out of Adam's fall. Can you say amen to that? Because I can point out sin all over the place. So if the whole world got touched by sin, do you think God was somehow going to compartmentalize his work to just one little bitty area? No, sir. The cross came and the second Adam came, who was Jesus, in order to provisionally redeem the world. That's why the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. I'm just quoting you the Bible. It says the nations are his inheritance. We're to disciple nations. We're, 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 We're to see national changes and revival. Folks, the only reason it doesn't happen is because we refuse to get a vision for it. But once we get a vision for it, God can move in that vision in certain practical and powerful ways. And that's what He called the church to do. The church is the called out ones to change the way the world works. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We function in it, but we're not cut out of the same cloth. And as we're here, we're not here just simply as a little moral sound, but we are here as a prophetic voice to speak the Word of God and say there is a better way, there is a fruitful way, there is a way we can be blessed, and there is a way that God can be honored, that all the hopes and all the dreams that you would have or your children would have can come to pass, but it only comes to pass when a nation serves the Lord. And the only way it'll happen is when we become the church. We are no longer a life coach organization. We are no longer just this positive message of you can do it better. Listen, folks, we can't do anything in and of ourselves, the Scripture says. Only He can do it. So we need a good old dose of Holy Ghost to come again and give us a Pentecost. So we'll go to the streets and literally turn it upside down again. No, we can't turn it upside down now because no Holy Ghost. But if we're pursuing Him and saying, oh God, make make this our upper room. Make this the moment when we cry out and you fill us that we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And that Lord, when we begin to share this, this truth and when we begin to share this this burden, and when we begin to witness these things, that, Lord, literally thousands, thousands will have heart changes. I I, I don't want another card written so it's handed to me, so I have to go pick up my phone and call them and beg them and market them and sell them to come back to church. That's what, that's what American church life is. You get a card, you call it and you beg and you plead and find out what their need is. And you you get them plugged in and you facilitate and enable them. I'm done, man. It's just, I'm, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? It's going to take a move of God again. But you know, I found this to be true. God never moves. I'll take it back. God rarely moves until his people get to the place. They call on him, he's waiting to hear he's waiting to hear, saying, "Lord, make us the church, make 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 us make us the church, just like you did with those disciples in Acts chapter two. they're scared, they were fearful, the whole world was coming down upon them, but you did something in them that made them the church, and Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And the uttermost parts of the earth were never the same again because of the church. I tell you the thing that really, I want to leave you with with just this. I will leave you with one positive thought. Do you understand that God works through his church? We are it. There is no plan B there's 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 not something else he's going to generate it's it's either it's either this or it's nothing we contain the answer I want to be that answer stand with me will you amen